With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, this is Allison. Before we start the show, I wanted to encourage you all to subscribe to Success on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It's a great way to make sure you never miss one of our most recent interviews. And while you're there, please leave a review and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Thanks. I'm Allison Chantel, and this is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. This week, Business Insider senior reporter Rich Filoni speaks with an entrepreneur, investor, and Shark Tank star, Damon John. When he was growing up in Queens, New York, it felt like the center of hip hop. I was going on video sets and I was watching LL Cool J or Salt and Pepper or Run DMC or Biggie Smalls perform. Damon John wanted to make clothes for rappers and hip hop stars. So he created FUBU out of his mom's house. My friends all moved in. We burned all the furniture that we couldn't sell. We had the eye of the tiger. We were focused, man. He used graffiti as marketing and talked his way into music videos. Eventually, it made him rich. In 2009, John became one of the celebrity investors on Shark Tank. Since then, he's written four books, invested in dozens of companies, and opened his own co-working space. His newest book, Rise and Grind, profiles people who succeed against the odds. The title, though, took on a new meaning for him in 2016. He was diagnosed with stage 2 thyroid cancer, which is where we started our conversation. It was uh, shocking to me, but, you know, not in the way that most people would think about it is, uh, you know, most people may say, well, they were, they were feeling ill or something wasn't right in their body. But, you know, me knowing that I, I, I have a lot of great doctors around and I go to normal physicals and everything else, found out that there was a tumor in my throat the size of a marble for probably about five years. And then when I had it removed, then they found out it was stage two cancer. So thank God I didn't have the worrying part all the way up to it. But after that, my lymph nodes were reacting to the surgery like they naturally should but now there's something else swollen another mass in my body and then my doctor was obviously saying you know i don't know if this is going to spread to your brain or do we have to do this again and i was like holy crap and then they they, they found out that that was just my lymph nodes reacting but that was the scariest part after you find out what you're facing you know but thank god i'm i'm cancer free i'm here i'm hanging out and uh the reason why i went <laughs> public about it is so that everybody else can go out there and get early detection and be able to hang out and drink and party like me did that really change your perspective on things when you were confronted with it? You know, I think that it, it, it reinvigorated my purpose to do things because, you know, people always say, what's your drive? And you find your drive, and I find my drive every day, like my daughters and my staff and the people that I get to invest in. But when you realize that your new definition of maybe the reason why I'm somewhat of a spiritual person, that God put me on a public stage, is that now I get to tell people about early detection, and now I'm saving lives because people coming back to me telling me that they either went out and got early detection or they 
they told their parents, and now that's driving me more and that's defining my life even more. Maybe everything I did in my life was to save somebody's life tomorrow. And with that drive that you're talking about, I mean, that, that ties into the title of your new book, Rise and Grind. And that's become it does. Like a, a mantra for you, right? Like, what does that mean? My mantra of rise and grind is how do you maximize the same 24 hours that we all have in a day? And I've seen you talk a lot about getting your work ethic from your mother. Well, my mother and my dad were both very hardworking people, but then my, my father had left when I was 10 years old. And uh, my mother, you know, I, I look back and I said, you know, I didn't really listen to my mother when I was growing up, but I ended up doing everything she did. She had a little cab service that she was driving. She was working part-time here and trying to work on her dream at night. Just always working. Always working and always trying to find uh, like-minded people around her, always educating herself. At that time, she was going to the library, uh, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, know, um, uh, looking in encyclopedias and she was traveling as much as she could. She actually got a job part time uh, working for American Airlines so she could see the world so she could broaden her view of life. And as I look at my success and I look back, I did everything she did, even though when I was a kid, I was like, my mother's the stupidest person on the planet. <laughs> right. Just like my kids, you yeah, know, yeah, think yeah. that I'm the stupidest person on the planet. But, you you know, you do what you see your parents do and not what they say. And, and you know, listen, I'm a self-proclaimed mama's boy, but I yeah. say it now. <laughs> but I wasn't going to tell you that at 15, 16, at 20 years old when I was trying to be cool. I'm yeah, a mama's yeah. boy. But her influence was like still affecting you, even if it wasn't cool to admit it. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And didn't she have like a sign would say like, think big? That was in your house, too? She had a can opener that was over our um, uh, refrigerator cabinets, and it was a, I'm going to say three feet, maybe two and a half or three feet can opener that said, think big. It was this long, and I, I didn't know what the hell was wrong with her. It, it looked like a long back scratcher, right? Yeah. And I was wondering, when the hell are we going to open anything with this can <laughs> opener? I didn't think about it until yeah, yeah, yeah. years later when I was like, think big, and I, you yeah. know, I get it now, you know? <laughs> What was your version of like the lemonade stand thing? Because you said that you always had these like small hustles as a I kid. I have plenty of versions what of that. that? So yeah. um, I used to uh, scour the whole neighborhood looking for bike parts that people would throw out or whatever the case is or abandon. You know, you know, you, it would go around New York City and you see the bikes that are all uh, taken apart but still left yeah, on yeah. the chain. Yeah. Um, and before <laughs> you know it, I would assemble bikes and I would sell them and then yeah. I would. I would have kids working for me in the yard, and if I didn't have enough parts to put the bike together, it would be a go-kart or something of that nature, and I had kids working out of my garage doing that. I used to sell pencils when I was a kid. I, I sold everything. I sold candy bars for, you know, I went to Catholic school for seven years, and, um, you know, they had this chocolate sale to be able to sell chocolates. Yeah, I had one of those. And yeah. I remember getting, um, making enough sales where I bought a, a TV. A really? little black and white television set, and that's when I used to watch all the Met games, my favorite team at the time. I found on that the TV, and I remember uh, I broke the TV because I was so excited. I knocked it over when the Amazing Mets won the championship. I was selling everything. You know, I think that's great, you know, what the Catholic school did to me to make me go door-to-door and sell things, you know? Entrepreneurialism was, like, in your blood, basically, at this point. Well, you know, I think entrepreneurship is in everybody's blood. It's just sometimes our the people and the surroundings around us or society tells us that we can't do what we are dreaming about doing. But as a kid, none of us sit there and go, it can't be done. We all go... I'm going to be Superman. I'm, I mean, we grow up dreaming, right? It's it's the people around us that stop us from dreaming. And sometimes they're doing it because they care about us. And, they, and maybe they grew up in a generation where one parent could go to work, the other one can stay at home, and you worked at a good place where you retired at 60 years old and Social Security was around and things of that nature. 
but we're not in the industrial age anymore and we're not in the agricultural age anymore. We're not at that time and now it's a different time. Yeah. And when you were like starting to come into your own, you came across the book, Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. I still read the book every other year, um, but I read the book probably three times until it caught on to the definition of the book. And I started to uh, activate the tactics in the book that they taught about goal setting. You know, goal setting is uh, uh, by far the most important aspect you could do in your life to become whoever you want to be, right? Because you're goal setting one way or another, whether you like it or not. So if you're goal setting that you'll never find a great man or a great woman, you're always going to be in an abusive relationship, you're setting a goal for that. Um, And I set, you know, the goals that Napoleon Hill told me to set and visualize and I read them every day at the time and I became the person that I wanted to be that I visioned myself being by the time I was 30 years old but it wasn't that easy it got so so dark in between those times of my life Um, so it wasn't like I don't want to paint this picture of set a goal and all of a sudden you're going to get this magic carpet ride I just don't know what gave me the faith to keep reading those goals as it got darker before it got brighter. Were you doubting yourself? Did you question whether you could ever be successful? No, I wasn't doubting myself. I was making the wrong moves. I was, I started doing things for money. So I started to buy crash cars and sell crash cars. And I figured that I had this, you know, I buy it so at 5000 crash car, like just the scraps? Yeah, you buy it at auctions. I buy it at 5000 I put 2500 into it and I sell it at 10000 or 12000 And then I did the numbers because I was so brilliant. <laughs> and if I sold X amount and then they started compounding, I would be a millionaire by 21. All right, so, well, that didn't work out quite well, and I was a waiter in Red Lobster at 21 years old. I was miserable trying to do that. I I can't do anything with my hands in regards to manual labor like that. I don't like that type of stuff, but I was just trying to do that for money, and I did various things for money. I opened up my livery service, which I had a good time doing it, but I literally worked 18 hours a day, and by the time I paid for all the insurance, the DOT, the Department of Transportation uh, fines and uh, maintenance and everything else, I literally was leaving the end of the year. I was leaving with a $30,000 net when I was making three, 400 a day. I was bringing in the van, but everything else was going every place else. I did that for three years. I was uh, extremely heavy at the time from eating fast food, sitting on the road. I was uh, tired and I, I did two or three things like that. And I turned around and I said, I don't think I'm going to be that millionaire, you know, whatever the case is. And Mm -hmm. let me stop chasing money. And during my downtime, I said, let me go back to Red Lobster. I'm not going to take that job home with me. I just want to, you know, get my head straight. And I picked up this hobby called FUBU where I wanted to just dress people on the side because of this love of rap music and a culture and and fashion. So FUBU was just a hobby to start? Just a hobby. Yeah. And that, that was what, 92? The first time was 89. And how old were you? I, 89, I was 20. And I closed it three times from 89 to 92 because I ran out of money. But the, the important point is that I took affordable steps. I ran out of $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. And every time I'd run out of money, let's say the six months that I wasn't doing food anymore, someone would say, man, what's going on with those shirts? Or I bought that shirt from you at an expo. I've been looking for you all year. And I always go, all right, I'll make a couple more. And I'll wear them. And then they'll go, hey, where'd you get that shirt? And and it just so it was just like side cash good. first. Yeah, it was just yeah. made me feel good. Also, another reason I was doing it is because I needed reasons to stop getting kicked off the video set. So if <laughs> I can go to the video set and say, "Hey, I'm dressing uh, that person over there," they were like, "Well, that person's the caterer. It doesn't matter. I'm dressing. I'm officially You're just the, like finding your way into LL Cool J videos and stuff. I'm the wardrobe person <laughs> over here, sir. Excuse me. Yeah. 
I was going on video sets. I was dressing people once in a while. I was getting to talk to all the video chicks. I was eating all the free food that they had over there. And I was watching LL Cool J or Salt and Pepper or Run DMC or Biggie Smalls perform. Yeah. I'd have paid money to go there. I was hanging out there all day. How'd you even get yourself in the room? Like, how'd you even get them aware of this brand? Uh, because I live in New York and at that time video sets weren't huge they were these small things being shot on damn near camcorders and once you're know, growing up in Hollis Queens I mean listen everybody's from Queens there's Run DMC Tribe Called Quest uh, Lost Boys Ja Rule 50 Cents uh, you know Salt and Pepper LL Cool J uh, Nas yeah. so once you knew one person and then you get to see their homie and you get to know their homie and then you get to know the bodyguard not the bodyguard and the friends you go hey what's going on tomorrow oh next week we're going to Latifah's set I'll see you there alright <laughs> see you there it's the same thing as networking right it's yeah. what we do every single day in bars and in uh conferences but i was just doing it on a different set but like at what point did it go from just having a shirt with something maybe that you had just sewn onto it to it being like this is a piece of clothing that people want well it they started talking about it uh very shortly after 89 probably about 1990 by 92 i decided to make a real run at it and 92 they started talking about it a little bit more from the levels of queens and then i got with someone named ralph mcdaniels who had a show a long lasting show called video music box it was a video show and he did a he did a a little piece on me on his local show which he's still out even till today and he talked about uh fubu being the next brand and so 93, 94 is when people really started checking for me. And around 95 is when it all culminated to me writing $300,000 of orders at the Magic Trade Show. I came back and I turned my house into a factory. That almost went bust. And by 96, I signed my first distribution deal. And that's when we started to go global, 97 to 2000. The name FUBU, for us bias, what did it mean for you and what were you looking to to accomplish with this. So the name for us by us has always been an acronym for us. And us has always been a culture and not a color. And the reason why is because there was a boot company that said, we don't sell our boots to drug dealers in the New York Times, I think, or Wall Street Journal. And it had already pissed me off because I was so busy buying, I was buying Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren. I was buying ski jackets that cost uh, $1,200. And I said, well, who's ever going to respect and value the people that love the brand? So I created FUBU, for us, by us. And I didn't want to be, uh, I wanted to be inclusive. I didn't wanted to be a brand that also rejected people because their color because you just had to be cool and love hip-hop i would address the beastie boys just as quick as i would address run dmc i would address third base just as quick as anybody else and i would definitely if he was around i think he's one of the greatest rappers of all eminem would have been my first <laughs> right so uh but it started to spread as a brand that was only made for a certain color which uh i think was uh was wrong it was made by a generation and a color of people that started a movement of something called hip hop, absolutely. But it, it would move on to be a global brand that in Korea and other places they appreciated because they respected uh, hip hop. Um, but that was always the forest bias. Didn't you have a. Uh this guerrilla marketing thing of just like spraying graffiti throughout New York? Well, it wasn't spraying graffiti. It was, um, we weren't violating any laws, but we went to all the stores that we could find that had the gates pulled down, the storm gates, and we would ask them, can we whitewash their gates and can we put authorized FUBU dealer on the gates? And that would be, they could be selling Chinese food. I didn't care what they were. They weren't an authorized FUBU dealer. Actually, there was no authorized FUBU dealer because yeah, there was, was not nothing. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but we spray painted those gates and we spray painted like 300 of them from New York to New Jersey. And those gates would be down early in the morning and down early in the evening and they would look like billboards we would just do anything and everything we could and we had a, we had a really great problem and your mom she moved to manhattan and left you the house in queens right 
you kind of turned it into a factory. Correct. Yeah. My mom got out. She said, you guys are crazy. And uh, my friends all moved in. We burned all the furniture that we couldn't sell. We moved all these um, commercial sewing machines into the into the house. And then we had a bunch of seamstresses sewing the clothes. Were you renting out rooms too? For like- I was renting out the rooms to my friends. Um, they were all. It was all about $75 a room. So that was, a, it was just a big Airbnb. There was strangers like a in the house. sweatshop It wasn't a sweatshop because <laughs> we were paying the women uh, good money. Uh, that This was my... I, I had to take a second mortgage on my home, which is mm. about a hundred thousand dollars, and I have no idea how we got that mortgage because my house is worth seventy five thousand. <laughs> uh, it was a crazy time. We were manufacturing for about a year and a half. Uh, we were burning polo fleece in the backyard, the excess per- polo fleece, so the whole uh, neighborhood was purple. The fire department would come and kick down the You're door, just like we burning were, things. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> had to get rid of the extra goods, and I wasn't paying to get carted away, right? Oh, so you save money on the on burning the garbage, the, the yeah. burning the extra fabric, right? Why not? My neighbors weren't really happy about it. The firemen would come and kick down the door, and we would jump the back fence and leave, and just, you know, the fines would be there. We'd just be known as the guys just burning crap in the backyard. I mean, we just didn't care. Yeah. We had the eye of the tiger. We were focused, man. Well, when did it go from, like, this scrappy startup to, like, a legitimate business? I mean, by 98, it was, like, the... Hip hop. Yeah, brand. so ninety five and ninety six is when we were doing the factory thing. In ninety six, we ended up uh, putting an ad in the paper because we ran out of capital, and this was our version of Kickstarter. It said a uh, million dollars in sales need financing, and uh, thirty straightforward. Yeah, straight up. Thirty three people called the ad. Thirty of them were loan sharks. Three of them were real, and one was Samsung's textile division. They said to us, "We have a deal, and it's uh, you know, you're gonna have to sell." $5 million worth of clothes in three years to keep this level of distribution. And um, because we had already made all our mistakes small and was there from 89 to 96 and knew our customers and knew what worked and didn't work, uh, we sold $30 million in three months. And then FUBU really just took off. And I was able to do what we do best, which was guerrilla marketing, sales, branding, and, and deal with all the artists. And we had a back-of-the-house logistics who could, who could handle manufacturing and um, uh, logistics. Something that I have found like really interesting that you've talked about is that this level of success that you've had as an entrepreneur, you said that part of it is due to being dyslexic. What does that mean for you? And when did it go from being something to be ashamed of to being proud of? Well, I was never ashamed of it because I didn't know I had it. My mother, you know, treated me so well and loved me so much and made me feel like there was something special I had, but I had to work on all the things that I was weak about. Um, but as I look back and I try to address people about dyslexia, and, and I believe the stat is over 40% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Um, you know, out of the sharks, if you add all the sharks together and the guest sharks, there's 12 of us and eight of us are dyslexic. Really? Yeah. If I look at it, it was always a workaround. So I would read something, I'd have to read it three times, and then I'd have to go and try to do anything in there that I that I read because I don't know if I grasp the, in- the information correctly. Um, so it always made me take action. Um, I took something called... Um, the co-op course in high school where I got to go to work one week and get credit for it and go to school one week. So I ended up working on 53rd Street, at uh, 55th Street, I think, or 53rd Street at First Boston. It happened to be a venture firm. Right? I started to see how people were dealing with venture capital at that time. I was a messenger, though. I was walking the streets all the time. But anyway, dyslexia, always the cheat and the work around dyslexia got me around to some area of doing something else that ended up becoming entrepreneurial. So... When FUBU, it's bringing in like $350 million, I think, in sales in 98. But then in your 2014 book, The Power of Broke, you refer to this period like in the early 2000s or so where 
you just had all of this excess inventory. And then also around this time, your investment in Heatherette, this fashion company, lost you millions of dollars. I think it was $6 million, you said. Mm -hmm. Was this like a dark time in your career? No, it you know it, it listen it definitely wasn't dark because I already had the resources behind me that I never had to work again, and I was now like all business owners face. I was in what am I going to do for my staff? How am I going to move forward? I was just trying to find my way. Um, so it was was it a dark time? No, it was a frustrating time. But then when you got a call from Mark Burnett with this invitation to be on Shark Tank in uh, two thousand eight, this was basically. Right after the Great Recession, this is the no. Time. It was right in the middle. It was, it was right. In the, it was in the middle of the Great Recession. Yeah, it was yeah. starting. Yeah. So Shark Tank, it, this opportunity comes along during the recession. Was this something that you jumped on to like a good opportunity? No, no, no. When I got the call, it was a waste of my time. I was like, this crappy show. Nobody will ever watch it. <laughs> Who the hell is going to watch? You know, five business people talking. But you know, I, I want to go out to L.A. and hang out for a little while and see some friends. So I'll take the flight out to L.A. I'll shoot the crappy little pilot. <laughs> One condition: I get to sit with you. You know, I get to sit with Mark Burnett and I get to pitch in my three smoking hot. TV show ideas that will change the entire world. So you just saw it as an opportunity for yourself, not like this is going to be a good show. Yeah. So, you know, at that time, I was probably about 35, 36. um, uh, And I go out there and I'm so just like not interested in the show that I go. I'm going out to a club that night. I wear my earrings. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to wear the suit. I'm going to wear my earrings. I got to hurry up and change. I go out to the club. I have to have some bling bling on at the time. The damn show gets picked up, and they tell me at that point, well, now for continuity, you got to keep the earrings in all the time. So now i got to keep the earrings in. Now I'm 48 years old, still wearing the goddamn earrings because I'm no longer the Shark Tank guy if I don't wear the earrings. <laughs> so that's what happened. I, don't, I then go and tell Mark, but then I go to breakfast. I go and pitch in my three great ideas on, on TV shows. I swear to you, before the eggs came, he shot down all the ideas. Um, now that I think about them, they were pretty crappy. I mean, I mean the show ended up being... Phenomenon, but yeah, it's season one. No one could have predicted that. We had uh, Barbara Corcoran in here, fellow shark. She was saying how when Laurie came on to the cast, that she felt great that she didn't have to be like the token woman of the show. Yeah, were you ever uncomfortable being like the only non-white person when they were casting this? I'm not white. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, not at all. I've always been confident in who I am. Um. I think that the cast. Uh, is extremely uh, diverse in their way of thinking. You know, I'll be very honest. Uh, prior to that, I had had some run-ins in Hollywood, you know, and I've dealt with a lot of Hollywood people, but I'll be very honest, the people over at ABC and at um, Mark Burnett's office have always been the most solid people I've ever worked with. So um, it, it ended up going from something that was on the brink of being canceled to, like, this yeah. cultural phenomenon, essentially. Yeah, it, it is amazing. When did you realize that it had become that? I think when Mark Cuban came on and he started to do the analysis on his own and said, this is the top show watch kids 5 to 15 years old and the top show watch parents and kids together. This is not going anywhere if you look at the data on how it has it's on the 17th year in London. Uh, I don't know what year in Japan and every city it goes to it pops after three years. You know, we, we just realized that this is this is something we're part of something special. And with Shark Tank again, like renewed for a 10th season, even something that is so popular can't just go on forever. But you've tied so much of your brand into it. You've got uh, the Shark Group, which is one of your companies. Um, You're the Shark Damon on social. What happens if the show weren't around anymore? 
Nothing. I'm still still a shark. You know, I didn't build it around those things. Uh, the shark daemon, yes, I, you know, because it was easy to separate my name from all the daemons out there. But the shark group was initially stealth. The stealth branding I used to have initially before shark, and then people started calling it shark branding when they called. And then I changed it to Shark Group because we do way more than just branding. And uh, outside of Shark Tank, you launched Blueprint and Co. last year, which is like your spin on a co-working space, but also kind of incubator and creative studio, right? Like- well, no, it, it's incubator creative, but it's for established companies. People who already have 100 people working someplace else, but they want they want to just maximize their talent in their staff. But they also don't want somebody at the water cooler getting pitched by somebody else for a $5,000 investment. These people aren't looking for funding. They already are established. In Rise and Grind, you said that you've never been busier or more ambitious in your life. You know, I was telling my friend the other day, I said, technically, I'm retired. I've been retired for about six, seven years because I haven't had to worry about my three, four hundred people at FUBU and I've licensed most of the brands out. So I didn't have to necessarily go to work and have this big infrastructure. But then all of a sudden, you know, now that Shark Tank has taken off and I'm investing in all these companies and, you know, we're doing a lot of branding and marketing. I'm busier now than when I was working. Right. And I love it. I love every aspect of it. And now I wanted to put out a book because so many people get the wrong information. So many people are sold insecure. There's so many people out there making money to make you feel insecure. You need this pill. You need this funding. You need me to give you consulting. Um, So I decided to come out with Rise and Grind and highlight these amazing people because there's so many people that are more successful than me in various different ways. And I look at success as as not for money because I have people in the book who may not have money. Some of our listeners, if they're early in their careers and they're looking to aspire to a career like yours, what is a piece of advice that you'd give them? You know, so if they happen to be working right now to pay the bills, which we all have to do, don't quit your day job. Never do that. You know, start setting goals to put in one hour, six hours, nine hours a week on whatever that dream is. Go out and surround yourself with like-minded people. Try to network as much as you can. Uh, find people who are mentors who don't have any interest in your company and or your product. Um, take affordable steps. Don't go bet the house. Instead of going to, to Vegas and playing a $1,000 a hand blackjack, play a 1,000 hands of a dollar a hand blackjack until you get to learn the groove and don't risk it all. And then you'll understand. And true uh, entrepreneurs act, learn, and repeat, right? Learn every single thing you want, you need. If you don't know how to sell online, then you go and start learning how to be a social media expert and you start learning coding, so the, at least you know the basics, and then you know when you can hire people. But it, it the biggest investment is always going to be yourself. Nobody else is going to do it for you. I'm not going to come to your house and grab you off the couch until you put down that Sega or whatever the hell you're doing, and come on, I'm going to make you successful. Nobody's going to do anything for you, I promise. And don't tell people your problems, you know? Bottom line, walk in the room happy because uh, 20% of people don't care about your problems. All the other 80% are happy you have them. So. Well, thank you so much, Damon. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. This show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. And I'm Allison Chantel. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success How I Did It.